0: Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here, and I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. At 40 Strategy, we provide strategic planning consulting to help organizations realize and achieve their dreams. But basically, we help companies create strategic plans and measure the right KPIs for success. Unfortunately, most organizations spend only about 2% of their time or about 40 hours per per year building an effective strategy. And I don't know about you, Scott, but I think that's pretty crazy. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, I would. I would.
1: I know that uh, when you came to help our organization, um, it was amazing. information and what strategies you brought forward.
0: Thank you. That's very kind for you to talk about that. That was uh, at the American Osteopathic Foundation. That, and that's what we met. Uh, back uh, not too long ago, it was a year ago before all this uh, craziness started. Uh, we probably would have been doing this in person if COVID hadn't been around. And um, and so with that, at 40 strategy your success is our passion. That's why our organizations call calling us to help. Not only do we come up with strategy, but we facilitate your teams with proven practices Harvard research shows when you actually do the right key performance indicators, you can actually triple your success. Who would not want that? You may email us at catch at catch catch-aball at 40strategy.com or simply go to our website at 40strategy.com. Before introducing today's guest, I want to give a big thank you to Rita Forden. She's the CEO of the American Osteopathic Foundation. It was here where Scott and I first met and uh, we were helping to create a five year strategic plan for the American Osteopathic Foundation or the AOF. And it was with this uh, opportunity that we're able to introduce our guest here, Dr. Scott Cyrus. With that, let's talk about Dr. Cyrus. Dr. Cyrus is a professor and chief of pediatrics, third and fourth year clerkship director at Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine, got that right that time at New Mexico State. He is also the founding member of this college, uh, which opened up in 2016. He's been an active pediatrician for over 25 years, most recently serving children and adolescent medical services and the St. Francis Health System in Tulsa Oklahoma he earned his doctorate from Oklahoma State University in 2020 scott had an incredible recognition of the george w Northrop educator of the year named by the national student osteopathic medical association foundation or soma and he honored where they honor one physician who serves as a member to medical osteopathic educational experiences scott also served as the former president of the New Mexico Osteopathic Medical Association and the American College of Osteopathic He's also the recipient of the Outstanding Physician Award from the Oklahoma Osteopathic Founders Foundation. And this is one of my favorite quotes that I read when reading about your achievements. Um, Even after all these achievements, Dr. Cyrus is more than a mentor. He is family. And from his meeting face to his festive ties, it's heartwarming to know that students can always get advice and friendship in Dr. Cyrus. So Dr. Cyrus, can it is a pleasure to have you on today.
1: And I'm gonna to have to pay somebody for uh, making that wonderful comment. I really appreciate you being being here and and uh, you know the students of uh, soma and the students the medical students that I've been able to be with and mentor. Um, it's It's been a real honor to to watch them grow up, watch them get their education and then send them out into residence.
0: It, uh, Scott, and and I appreciate you being let know you're good enough because we we, um, Last time we met was in Chicago O'Hare Airport. I think it was like last time. It was in January of 2020 where we feel comfortable flying together. This is uh, before, and we hadn't even changed that. And since then, everything has been Zoom. Um, And and we had a really fun evening that night, actually. It it was great to get to know you more and have some great conversations about the travels that you do. Um, But why don't you, for everybody who who doesn't uh, know, tell me a little bit more about the two different occupations that you have and, and how are you making a difference in the world? Well, for
1: 25 years, I've been a, a general pediatrician in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, uh, one day, um, a, a good friend of mine that I had done a fellowship with came up to me and asked me if I would ever think about being the, uh, the department chair of pediatrics at a new founded, uh, medical school in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And, uh, it was one of the it was one of those times in life that you perfect timing. My I have five children, and my fifth child was graduating high school and going off to college, and so we kind of had the empty nesters idea. And and um, uh, but we I just felt like there was something more out there to do. And uh, but I enjoy teaching because I had students in my practice uh, every month. But I also enjoy practicing medicine and enjoy uh, uh, having the kids in and in, in taking care of the children and so we did it we we bit it off <laughs> if you will and uh now i fly every other week uh to las cruces new mexico from tulsa oklahoma and i teach pediatrics in las cruces new mexico at the burrell college of osteopathic medicine as the founding chief of pediatrics and uh when i come back to tulsa i practice in, in the state of oklahoma so it's a, it's a lot of fun it's the best of both worlds uh, some people say well how, how in the world do you you know, how in the world do you get it done, or you know why would you do something like that? and I, And I said, well, one, I have a passion for both. I have a passion to teach and a passion to take care of children. but also, uh, if I get tired of teaching, i go I go practice. And if I get tired of practice, then I go teach.
0: that is uh, that is an amazing. And I have to say that the board uh, that you're one of the board on, the American Osteopath Foundation, that group of people, that, that you were not the only one who had, uh, multiple different sites across the country that you are uh, serving and make a difference. And, and I think, I think it's your ability to be able to touch and have a greater impact and more people is, is what people are ultimately looking for. That's where you get these opportunities. And and you also are wildly funny and you are already before this, we got going, you were making fun of like the, the sound wasn't working and things of that nature. So um as I said, I really, really miss hanging, hanging out and being with you. So, what has been? I mean, it's kind of the obvious question, but I'll ask it anyways. What what has been top of mind for you right now or recent state? What has been going on? And, and tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Well, I think it's the top of mind of most people, and most especially in, in people in medicine, is obviously combating the COVID virus and and uh, trying to stay healthy yourself during the uh, <clears throat> excuse me during the uh, time that. You know the past year the past 14 months that we've been dealing with with covid um uh, one of my main purposes is trying to keep as many people in my practice as well as in my personal family obviously as healthy as possible uh my mother is 86 years old uh, uh all my siblings i have three siblings and they're they all hold a job uh, uh one is a is a judge one is a, a teacher another one is a Corporate uh, executive, so they're, to say that they are exposed to the general public uh, is is uh, an understatement of the day. So we're all, but yet we, but things had to move forward. Uh, children needed to be seen. Uh, we didn't. I did not want to have a child develop a vaccine-preventable disease because of the fact that they couldn't get into my clinic and be able to uh, receive the vaccines that they could, even though they are very worried about contracting uh, COVID virus in the clinic, we made measures and steps and we made our patient population aware of those measures and steps so that they were safe. We we, batted, um, we basically had all sick uh, patients in one side of, the, of our office, whereas all well children went to another side. There was no waiting times. They came right directly into the room, so they were isolated immediately. Uh, and so and we, we uh, made sure that as they left, there was always distance between the patients and stuff like that. So we were really very concerned about that and keeping our patient population healthy and, and making sure that they, are, they were doing well.
0: And, and how long, I was curious, it sounds like a well-oiled machine now. How long did that process take before you could, you know, before that got going to be effective?
1: Well, you know, as a, as a private practitioner, um, uh, we could make some steps really rather quickly. We immediately closed listening to the CDC, listening to the minds of medicine. We quickly uh, changed the way we, we approached um, uh, our patients and how we made sure that, you know, as we called our patients back to remind them of their appointments, that we were taking these measures to help uh, decrease their worries and their fears. Uh, we were able to close the um, uh, waiting room immediately, and so uh, I used I used the uh, thoughts of my other uh, 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 partners and uh, my staff to echo to me what was being heard from from the patients and what would in, inhibit the patients from coming in. Interestingly enough, when this was a this was something uh, as I'm, I'm we've all seen in pediatrics for sure. Because people were able to uh, start wearing their masks, washing their hands and keeping their distance, then we actually saw much less illness, much less, um, um, much fewer uh, children that were sick. And so we really focused on catching up the well child and making sure that they were able to keep their vaccines. And that was one of the issues, you know, we were trying to do all the videos and everything that we could possibly do, but obviously you can't, you can't say, okay, get a little closer to the computer. I'm going to give you a shot. They actually had to come in.
0: Absolutely. Um, that, that's pretty fascinating. So it, so it does sound like you were doing a fair amount of telemedicine. Um, now, was this something you did before that, or did you switch to it because of this?
1: We had to switch to it. Uh, in fact, uh, some of the laws uh telemedicine was out there, but some of the uh, uh, the insurance insurance companies uh, allowed us to do it because their reimbursement were were there beforehand, they didn't have that ability to really be reimbursed. and so uh, there was not a lot of time given to telemedicine except it was across state lines uh, you know, and you were in a subspecialized area. but for the most part. If you were if you were just a general pediatrician as I was, the, the patient needed to come in to see you or make a phone call. If it was something that, that could be handled over the phone, we were able to do that too. But we took a lot more nurse calls, and then again, uh, the the ill patients, the actual you know RSV, the um, influenza, uh, ear infections, colds, even colds dropped off dramatically because we again we all stayed home. We were not in school. We were not exposed to other people. And therefore, uh, illness really dropped off. And we were really focused just on the well child.
0: Mm. Uh, that is, and, and so now let's talk about your other part of the world, which is the teaching side, right? So on, on the teaching side, that obviously, I have two kids in college, actually two kids in college, two in uh, high school. Um, their lives have been completely different over this, uh, this past year. Tell me about what, what's been happening with, with, at the college. How has that changed your teaching methodologies?
1: Well, our teaching methodologies were the same. Our teaching approach and deliverance is what changed. Our methodology was the idea that we needed to get this information over to a professional group of students because they're all in med school and we have 160 med students in a class. And with that, we had to deliver that information, but we had to deliver it over a pre recorded uh, setup. We actually became, I became more available to my students. You know, when you're standing in front of 150 students, 160 students in an auditorium, they can ask a question at any point in time during the presentation. That's the kind of open format that I have. But in this situation, it was pre-recorded. So they either had to email me the questions or they had to text me or call me. I made my cell phone available uh, to them because I wasn't always on campus. But I was trying to be always available to them. They they would text me. Sometimes they would they would email me at two o'clock in the morning, and I would answer them at, when I woke up at four or four thirty in the morning, and I would see their email and I would answer them back. But um, we tried to be. I tried to be as as available to the student as possible. This this isolation, this seclusion that the student went in was very uh, impactful to them. Uh, they you know they we're all used to the camaraderie, all used to. Um, Ah, uh, being around one another, and so this was this was very difficult. And in Las Cruces, New Mexico, the uh, COVID virus was was hit very very hard. And so uh, we had actually shut down the building where we didn't even have uh, faculty in the building unless it was absolutely uh, pertinent. So a lot of our sessions were done remotely, and so I was able to uh, uh, be in Tulsa and then remote into zoom meeting uh with the students and we could we could uh, have you know 30 students on a zoom call and we could go over certain things with them but when it came to instruments or techniques on how to examine a patient or uh along the things along that line then we actually had to come on campus and start that process Mm -hmm.
0: and 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 that you you'd mentioned beforehand, you said that you had students coming in from one side of the building. They're coming in one at a time, right? So you have a very um, closed caption, so to speak, method kind of of making sure that each person is coming in, getting to do what they need to get done, but moving on, but still getting this experience that they need to be qualified.
1: Exactly. We When the student comes in the building, their temperature is taken. Uh, they badge in so we know they're on campus because – if we have a COVID case breakout, and we did, we had a COVID case breakout um, um, in the, uh, in, on campus. Uh, we had a student that came up positive with COVID, had been on campus. We have to do the contact tracing. And it was our job to be able to uh, know who, who everybody was on campus. And by that, we were able to track down. And then they, of course, had to isolate for the 14 days. And uh, they weren't able to come back on campus, but they were able to do the Zoom meeting and 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 continue their learning from that. Yeah. Uh,
0: so I'm curious, we, we, you know, it's always hard to and just for people to know this is being recorded at the end of March 2021. This is not going to be released till about end of May. We've got about an eight, you know, eight week lag from recording to that. So things are always going to change from even when the time this is released. Um, but I'm curious from your perspective, let, let's talk about the telemedicine for a second. How, how much of that – so uh, let me do a comparison. Um, the, prior to COVID, about 2.5% of the population to 3%, depending on which numbers you're looking at, actually worked consistently from home. Today, it, it's, a, it's a big argument of what the real number is, but you know it could be up to 45 to 50%, depending on what it is. But, of course, it's half the world that has to still make things and do things, right? That's how we're getting our food still. That's how we're getting our desks. That's how we're getting the different areas, right? They're, those people are still going into work. I'm curious to you on on what you're doing. Let's talk about telemedicine. I think things are going to settle back to some number. I don't know what that is. I'm speculating between 15 to 20% of the population is going to end up working remotely even when this is all said and done. You you talked about telemedicine. How much do you think that's going to stick two years from now? I don't think as we get back to
1: medicine, is, as a norm, uh, and, and, and we're seeing it actually, I'm actually seeing it now, because we're relaxing some of the rules, the students are back in school, um, um, and in school, they can't necessarily keep their distance, they don't wash their hands nearly as much as they do when they were at home, they are re- wearing their mask to some degree, but it depends on what kind of mask they have, whether it's, you know, where, whether it's adequate enough, we are seeing more illness. And some of the illness can be uh, taken care of by a, from a telemedicine standpoint. The the issue is the provider. If the provider is already seeing patients, and you don't have a provider just solely set to doing telemedicine, then you try to do it either over over uh, lunch hours or after hours, and so it makes it a little bit more inconvenient for the for the patient. Uh, With with urgent cares, with emergency rooms, uh, patients are able to get their care, you know, almost immediately, and they don't have to wait for an appointment at the at the physician's office. As far as vaccines, as far as uh, certain tests that are required, many of the many of the people are doing telemedicine to see what's wrong with the patient, and then say, okay, you do need to make an appointment. I need you to come in. Which in in kind of in some way delays care still. And so it makes it, it makes it different. So we try to triage the patient over the phone, which is not necessarily a telemedicine format, but we try to um, uh, triage them over the phone. And then our nursing staff is able to say, okay, yes, you need to come in or no, we can treat you, um, uh, you know, almost sight unseen. We will take, you know, we will uh, have, People take pictures of rashes, things like that, that are not, that are not um, preceding. But for the most part, we're having patients come in at this point in time, because again, they need services that can only be done in person. And we're just taking all the precautions of wearing our mask and, and uh, trying to keep our distance and and keep our patients away
0: from one another. Let's talk about your classroom down in in, uh, Las Cruces, right? You're down there in New Mexico State. Do, do you foresee that 150 person lecture hall uh again? You know, and or maybe that's a question where it's at capacity, right? Where people are sitting uh like we 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 used to, you know, uh, when do you when do you possibly first of all, do you see it coming back? And of course I know this is speculation, so we're not I'm not holding you to anything here, but what, what's just based on the medical side of things? What what do you foresee happening like once again, two years from now?
1: You know, two years from now, I see, I think we're going to have a vaccine for COVID and its valence, I, uh, I think, it, or its variance. Uh, I think we're going to have probably a treatment, much like we have a treatment for uh, influenza. Uh, I think that um, even though the two viruses act very um, different, I still think our science, is our ability to understand what our science is and such like that, um, we um, uh, have that ability to you know, be able to treat the patient. And I think that will be in our repertoire. Uh, We have abilities to treat herpetic diseases. We have ability to treat other viruses uh, that are affecting children and adults. And so um, look at the progress we've made with hepatitis C, which is a virus or or the HIV um, uh, virus. So we have that knowledge. It's just going to take time. And I know there's there's companies out there that are researching this very issue right now, and so uh, it's a matter of, of of that being marketed and brought to market as quickly as possible.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's talk about the more, more question. This is the measure success part, and and you of course have these two different parts. Of one is trying to develop and, and create pediatricians, and and then you have this other side of actually uh, being in the pediatrician and t- you know uh, having. Patients. So let's talk about the teaching side. How do you measure success for yourself in, in trying to uh, in, in the school environment, in the teaching environment where, with students? And obviously, you have been uh, recognized as, as a top performer uh, in that. Which again, congratulations on, on that award that you received last year. Tell me a little bit more about what do you what do you see, and how do you what, what how do you measure success on a on a maybe annual or regular basis for yourself and for the college.
1: Well, thank you very much for that, that compliment. And, you know, the, the way I look at success is the success to me is not in the, in the person. The success is in the product. And my product for me is in, the, in really the long run when I'm teaching medical students, uh, and I, I've told this to students many, many times, my success is measured in your patient outcome And they, they look at me like, what do you mean? It's not in me? No, your success is in your patient outcome. How well can you care for a patient? That's where my focus is. It's the world of medicine is not about me, it's about my patients and how well do they do in their health, not in their illnesses, in their health. To me, a successful physician, you know, it's, it's like A.T. Still said, you know, anybody can pick out disease. It's the, it's the health that we focus, should be focused on, is the healthy individual. And that's why uh, preventative care, especially in pediatrics, is so important to me. But when teaching the students, you look at the student and you say, you know, oh, you're you're doing very well. You're focused. You're you know you're staying on track and all that. But I'm here to tell you, it's how well do you do with your patient that's going to be your measure of success. And so um, when I when we have student conversations and they they have uh, or they have troubles. I mean, you know uh, they may not be staying right on the straight and narrow. Uh, my focus is to say, what how are you going to treat your patient? not, uh, not, you know, not oh, I, I skip class or I, I did this, but when you when you skip class, you're not affecting just you. you're affecting people that you'll someday care for. And so uh, if you don't get the information, if you do you know we all do bad on two, on exams. I mean, we've all had our our troubles with exams. Uh, but it's that person that gets up and says, I'm going to learn this material. If it takes me 10 times to learn it, I will learn it, and I will be able to apply it, and that's what's the focus because applying it means my patients will eventually do better because of my learning.
0: It's certainly a lot more important than just forgetting a historical fact, right?
1: (laughs) What happened in 19 – what was it? Who won the 1943 World Series?
0: Uh, Well – yeah. But that that was a great answer. I, what you were talking about, I loved it. Is you you were talking about this leading and lagging, the the leading things that you're doing today, showing up, truly having competence and understanding, and then the outcome is your patients, you know, their patients' health. That's a great analysis or or understanding of the cause and effect that you're trying to teach, and and. I appreciate you sharing about that because I think that's often what's missed, right? And sometimes the near-term focus for a student is they need to get an A, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's not really the goal. I mean, I know you're trying to get straight A's or whatever it might be, or could get, but the goal is to actually that carry forward, especially in medicine, where nearly, nearly, you know, if you're flying or medicine or you know these things where life and death is truly at risk. The the critical importance of understanding. You know, we 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 can get away and be sometimes lazy in business, right? We make a mistake, and and at times nothing's going to hurt. We might lose some money, we might lose some pride, but there's not necessarily a life and death outcome. But medicine that is not uh, acceptable, right? You know, to to make mistakes if you can afford it. You know, obviously we're not perfect, but we have to try.
1: We're not. We're not. Physicians are not perfect by any means, and we are. You know I've always said that persistence pays off uh, if i don't if I don't uh, you know get the understanding the first time, uh, I'm gonna come back around and get the understanding the second time or the third time or however many times it takes me to be able to uh, allow my patients to be healthy, uh, that is to me the ultimate goal and and in in what's interesting is is everybody's definition of health is a little bit different so mm. we we can't just collectively, you know, um, say, OK, I'm going to put a group of, you know, uh, 10 kids in a room and say, OK, uh, I'm going to put you all on antibiotics and every, everybody is going to be just fine. And when somebody may have high blood pressure or may have a heart problem, you know, and so I would treat that person incorrectly. And again, you know, what would be the dose? And you know, so all, all we do is we see one patient at a time. And we focus on their needs and make sure that they can do what we ask them to do. If they can't, we have to change. We have to, we have to modify what we've asked them to do. And I spend most of my time uh, trying to help people work things out in their way of living. And that, that's the individualized care uh, and compassion that each physician, uh, if they don't have, should have for their patients. And that's what I teach my my students at, at the Burrell College of Australia Medicine.
0: This is, uh, I, I frustrated that we're running out of time here because I want to ask you about 15 more questions, but I'm going to ask you only two more. Um, one is on your personal side. How have you, how did you pull off traveling from place to place? What What do you do on a, on a regular basis to keep, give yourself the energy, right? So you can successfully, um, Deliver great services both at a college level and, and a practicing physician.
1: If I could give one piece of advice to the entire world, <laughs> and that is, if you don't like what you're doing, change. And medicine gave me that ability to do that. And uh, if you want to modify your your world, uh, do so. My dad gave me a, a piece of advice one time. He said, "The world is a stage. As long as you paper yourself upright." And his paper paper yourself upright meant your college education, uh, your medical school education, or your business education. Uh, my my sister was a teacher, and she went back to law school, and now is a a, a judge. Um, that these stages, these world stages, uh, are not given to you. Uh, you have to you have to have the right credentials to be a part of that. But when you do, if you decide that you don't like what you do, go change. Uh, you know, that's the compassion that I like to see in taking care of kids. But on the other side of it is the, also the stick-to-itiveness to go over on the other side and teach the, the medical students, the ones that are the brilliant minds of today, to teach them how to get to the stage of being able to apply what they know and do it with compassion, do it with being individualized. And it just, it gives you, when you have that uh, um, passion, uh, you know, to me, that's really what drives you to do what you want to do. Uh, and I, I enjoy it. I really do. I enjoy it. Uh, I, I do a lot of laughing. I do. A lot, I have a lot of fun. Um, you know, uh, I had a little boy today, just today. He said, I said, okay, I will see you later. He said, okay, I'll see you later. Love you. <laughs> and his mother turns and says, he, she, he says that to everybody. <laughs> And I said, now you know why I do what I do.
0: That is a wonderful, that is a great answer, by the way. So thank you for sharing that. I always like to ask somebody's favorite book or, or recent book. Yeah, it's funny, you talked about your current book. It's like, okay, like three people are reading that book because it's very good. digital. <laughs> I love that you're like, but-, uh, but I, uh, I, told, I
1: told you earlier, I told you earlier, I said that the book I'm reading right now is how to remediate the struggling medical Student." And, and, and because, again, we're, we're invested in those medical students. They've invested a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of um, uh, money, if you will, uh, getting into med school. And so to to know that they are uh, – we want them to be successful. And how successful they are is, is obviously evident in how well they can care for patients. But when I was, when I was really young, I've always – I enjoyed a book. It was called I Was on Fire When I Laid Down on It. And it was, it was a sequel to a book called All I, Ever, All I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And, you know, when I look at developmental things uh, as we grow up, uh, I, did, I was a part of a group of physicians and um, thought leaders out of Chicago. And the, uh, the idea was to, to understand how children think. And those formative years of, of one to four to one to five years of age, are extremely, extremely important on the the brain. And we have the science now to show the trillions, literally trillions of connections that are being made in the brain as a child, as an infant is growing. Those connections are being either made or they're being lost. And it's so important to focus on those first five years because again, what we learn in those first five to six years of life, it, it really, really forms our entire adult life, and there's a there's a study out there about those those uh, stressors in a child's life, how they cause high blood pressure and cause uh, depression, and all the problems that we sometimes see in adulthood. but a lot of those can be uh, taken care of by uh, focusing on uh, everything I ever needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Those are both great
0: suggestions. Uh- Dr. Cyrus, if you can give once again that first book, by the way, I think is actually quite important if you're thinking about going into medical college. Uh, can you can repeat, or you are teaching? Can you repeat that one more time? It was called "It Was on Fire" when I Oh no, out. not that one. That the oh. medical book, the medical. Oh, you
1: oh, 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 how to re, how to help the struggling medical student. That now, that how is uh, how to remediate. I think it's either how to remediate or how to help the struggling medical student.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Um, this has been fantastic. Uh, I really, really have appreciated it. Thank you so much for for being on and being a, a, a guest with us today on the Measuring Success podcast. And, and with, to everyone else, we're wishing you the very best at Measuring Success. And, and with that, Scott, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you. We were.
1: i really enjoyed it. And and Carl, good luck to you. And I just hope the best and stay uh, as they as they've been saying is to uh, stay positive and test negative
0: amen to that. All right. Have a wonderful day. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.